it was a shift from take me as I am, which is fine in a college, collegiate setting, but it's not fine in a work setting, especially in an agency environment, especially when it's a team-based environment, client-based environment, you know, and then later on your, in your career, when you become more senior as a leader, that kind of all or nothing philosophy doesn't work. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is a composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self or the true self. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, then you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked with Casey Jones about surviving a nearly fatal accident. She shared with us how the experience changed her and the lesson from that experience that she brought in her work with her clients. Today, I am thrilled to have with me an old friend, Armin Mulavi. Armin has over 20 years of experience in marketing and advertising. He came up through the ranks in a couple of the U.S. best advertising agencies and ran diverse teams across the board there, and then spent about three years as the VP of Global Media Strategy at Hilton Hotels, a position in which he ran about $600 million in media um, across the whole world. Right now, he is the principal of A. Molavin Consulting, a marketing strategy practice, and he's also owner and CEO of Hotel Business Magazine. This is a very rich episode. Armin and I talked about how he found his own authenticity coming out of the closet in college and how that informed his directness and transparency um, in the workplace. Then he shared the lessons that he learned while he was running a 70 people global team for three years um, and he was working from home and how some of the lessons can be applied by managers who are right now dealing with the re-entry after the pandemic. Of course, as the CEO of Hotel Business Magazine, I had to ask him about the perspective from the industry on what is going to happen and now that the world is slowly reopening. And then we had a, a really good conversation around the importance of truth and transparency in services. One more note before we get to the actual episode. In our conversation, Armin mentioned some advice that he received from an old colleague of ours and somebody that I would have really loved to have as a guest on this podcast if he had not been taken away from us too soon last summer. Um, I am thrilled that some of his wisdom still made it on this podcast because he was one of the smartest, kindest, more compassionate people that I have ever worked with. And so I want to dedicate this episode to the memory of my friend and our friend, Ape Pachikara. Armin, it's great to see you. I'm going to start sharing something with you that is scary, I think, for both of us. I think I've known you for more than 20 years. <laughs> I, I was looking at it and I do think it's very close to that. So It is. I think I, I joined Digitas at 2000. When did you start? Well, I started in 98 the first time. Yes, yeah, so it's 21 years. We've known each other and we've crossed paths in different things, different places. One thing that I always appreciated what you is your build per cell quality that people always know where they stand with you. 
there's never any fakery. You know, it's very easy. Sometimes it's great to know where you stand with you. Sometimes, you know, not so great, but people always know where they stand. And I think that one of your inner authenticity. So my first question is, what does authenticity mean to you? First of all, I'm so excited to be here, Dino, and it's so great to see you um, thriving in this uh, podcast and everything else that you're doing. My definition of authenticity obviously has a lot to do with, you know, me being gay, me being in the closet as a teen, you know, and striving for that kind of transparency and openness about who I am. You know, quite frankly, high school sucked. I mean, it was a miserable experience for me. And I very distinctly remember driving to college and just thinking like, I can't let this happen again. I went into college with this kind of no holds barred. Like if you like me, you like me. And if you don't, shame on you, that's your problem. And that's the way I went through college and it worked out really well for me. Um, I loved my college years. That kind of all or nothing, take it or leave it kind of personality is, you know, the, the, the beginnings of that that notion that you're talking about where everyone knows where they stand with me. But there's no question it was not awesome all the time in my career. You know, I got a lot of commentary around, I wear my heart on my sleeve. One of the best things a boss, a good friend of ours, a Pachikra, um, said to me in a review was the, the water in the kettle boils, but the kettle does not. You know, it's something that I really had to work on. You know, how do I maintain composure, my personality? Because it was an end, you know, it was a shift from the way I was in college, right? It was a shift from take me as I am, which is fine in a college, collegiate setting, um, but it's not fine in a work setting, especially in an agency environment, especially when it's a team-based environment, client-based environment, you know, and then later on your, in your career, when you become more senior as a leader, right, that kind of all or nothing philosophy doesn't work. And so the question becomes, how do you adapt? How do you still maintain um, the passion, right? And, you know, the, you know, the authenticity and the realness, if you will, with all of my personal relationships, while at the same time, becoming that leader, becoming that professional that you know, agencies and modern business demand from people, you know, it was really about a lot of EQ, you know, and just thinking through like, how do I want people to perceive me professionally, which was a very different construct, construct than coming out. And as you are going through the process of becoming the kettle that doesn't boil while the water is boiling, what were some of the episodes or the moments where you decided, I want to show up differently? You know, there were definitely moments where the professional stress just manifested in these kind of ugly ways. You know, when I was really young, it definitely damaged personal relationships, damaged professional relationships. And, you know, I was very fortunate to have a lot of really amazing mentors at Digitas to kind of coach me through that experience and coaching me through that experience really had to start with helping me see the damage that I was doing, you know, help me see that this, you know, take it or leave it attitude doesn't work professionally. And, you know, I think, th I think what was really hard about it was, you know, you fight so hard when you're closeted to come out and be exactly who you are, authentically who you are. And that kind of hyper authenticity 
as someone coming out of the closet, right, cannot be applied (laughs) professionally, right? And you have to really think about, like, how do I course correct this? How do I continue to be passionate, continue to love what I do, continue to motivate my teams, continue to showcase that I'm not happy with the level of the work, that I see areas for opportunity, How do I do that in a way with the same passion that doesn't turn people off, turn people away and, you know, disengage them? Because that's the worst, right? Especially today, right? Like when you think about the battle for talent that is going on in corporate America, leaders that cannot keep talent are a cost and are a cancer to any company today. And so if you have top leaders that are not engaging talent in an authentic, you know, meaningful way, that talent is going to leave. Money is not going to keep them. Benefits is not going to keep them. Work from home is not going to keep them, right? And it's going to be very easy for them to quit and leave. And so, you know, a lot of those skills that I learned early on, you know, from a lot of our colleagues at Digitas are so critical to, you know, how I kind of engage with people um, today. And I think, you know, a lot of it is, partially about like, you know, being as transparent as I have been, but also, you know, really spending the time, like understanding their professional motivations, their personal motivations. If you don't understand those things about people, like how can you help them succeed? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting observation. Tell me if this resonates with you. The way I talk about this with my clients is I grew up in the name in the nineties on wall street. Those were my early professional experiences. And then in consulting, At the time, leadership was a very top-down approach. You know, my job as an analyst, as a consultant, was to understand the style of my manager and work consistently with that style. In the war of talent that you're referring to right now, the tables have turned. The burden on understanding the work style is on the leader. And when you work with large teams, especially when you have very large teams, you need to understand all the different styles of the people that are working with for you. And that's for two reasons. One is you want to get the most out of them. And the second part is that in the war for talent, you can't afford to only rely on A and A plus people. As a leader, if you can get a B plus person to become an A or a C plus to become a B plus, that's how you fight the war of talent. So I haven't been in the large corporate America directly. You've been recently. How does this resonate with your experience? I I think it's very on point. The one phrase that I want to be careful about is um, the tables have turned. They may have turned for a hot second, but it is going to course correct very quickly. I think right now the sentiment is that the tables have turned. You know, and again, I want to be clear, we're talking, we're not talking about like low-level employees, right? I think lower skilled employees in this country clearly, you know, higher minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's clearly a power shift happening there. But I think when you're talking about corporate America, yeah, sure, of course, there is definitely a little bit of a power shift right now. I think we're overcorrecting. But, you know, what's interesting is, is I come from Hilton, which regularly won best place to work around the world. And they're still battling to keep talent and retain talent, you know, with all the great benefits. Working in hospitality, everybody laughs at me like it's very hospitable. Everybody's just lovely. 
you know? And so here you are working at this amazing brand at this amazing company with all these lovely people with lovely benefits and you still have to retain talent. You still have to retain amazing talent and you still have to retain, uh, you know, to your point, um, Dino, a breadth of talent, right? Like it's impossible to have a team of 70, 80 people around the world in five offices that are all the best of the best because there's simply not enough room for them to all move up. You know, and at some point, some of them are going to leave, some of them are going to go. But if you are constantly um, aware of what all of their needs and wants are, both professionally and personally, you can, you know, you, you will be well on your way to, to maintaining that and retaining them because losing talent right now is so costly. Yeah, I want to actually take advantage of the fact that you have had an experience at Hilton which somewhat would have prepared you for what we're going through right now in the transition from remote to going back to office or to potentially a hybrid model. You have actually, before the pandemic, you've run a very large team at Hilton from a remote position, either at home or on the road. So if you're thinking about the leaders that are right now dealing with that transition, you know, trying to figure out how and how much of the hybrid model do we retain? What are some tips as to, as like success factor for making a hybrid model work? Yeah, so a little bit of context. So when I started at Hilton, we had about 30 people in two offices, three offices. Um, when I left, the team was about 70. Um, and I left right before the pandemic. And then on top of that, we had, I would say about like 70 to 100 agency people, which we very much so felt were a part of our team. You know, I think there's a couple things that, you know, leaders have to figure out with remote as well as the time zone. Creating the sense of boundary for both yourself and your team as it relates to working hours. You know, I know we all have this sense that we don't work just 40 hours a week, but that doesn't mean people are on call 24 seven. That doesn't mean that uh, just because so-and-so sent you an email on Saturday, that they're ready to receive an email from you, right? You know, one of the things that I always told my teams was, hey, by the way, you know, my kids always nap from one to four on the weekend. So if you guys get a ton of emails from me on Saturday from one to four, that's because they're taking a nap. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to reply, you know? And I think it also goes true for when you have global team, right? Like I would send out a note to my direct reports that lived in London, you know, DC, Dallas, Shanghai. You know, it's not like I can send it at four different times and I want them all on the same email chain. But when I send an email at two o'clock in the U.S., I don't want my London people replying if it's eight o'clock at night, you know. And so you have to set those standards for them. And the only way you can set that standard for them is to set that standard for yourself and showcase that yourself. You know, I think Mark Zuckerberg gets a lot of flack for lots of reasons. But, you know, recently Facebook announced their work from home policy. And he himself came out and said, look, I'm going to work from home, too. I think that. I can get chunks of, you know, I can sit at home uninterrupted, get a lot of work done. I also don't have to commute as much. I can be with my family. Like he acknowledged all of those things. And by doing that, he gave carte blanche to the entire company to do what he's doing. And I think that's something that we all have to just really think about. You know, and I think the other things that you just have to be super cognizant of is how do you find time to have one-on-one -on -one time with people? You know, whenever I would travel to different offices, um, you know, you have this kind of 
this push and pull of like, I'm going to the office for a reason, right? And I try and pack in as many reasons as possible, but I have to make time for all my people individually, you know? And when I'm not there, I also have to make time for them individually on their time zone. You know, I had people in Singapore, which is 12 hours ahead, you know, the, the job of a global head is to be a global head. And that means eight o'clock meetings at night. And so you have to figure it out for them because otherwise you're not, you're not going to get the best out of them. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on uh, uh, building and keeping a team culture for a largely distributed team? You know, one big one is that mid layer of your team. You have to make it very clear that they play a huge role in that. Um, I think the mid layer of any organization, right? No matter if you look from the top to the bottom or you look within just a department, um, that mid layer has such a great insight as to the people that are reporting to them and how are they feeling and the people that they're all reporting into. And, you know, you have to have them set the tone, right? You, I, I personally, you know, with my team at Hilton, I had about eight directs and, you know, I made this something that they were responsible for, obviously in conjunction with me, right? But you have to empower them to say, guys, this is part of your responsibility. You have to help surface what's going on. Um, you have to communicate with each other. You have to communicate with me. And whatever you need from me, I will manifest, right? Because obviously I can't manifest everything around the world, you know, in six different offices, But if you tell me what's going on, I will help you manifest that. Um, and I think that that's, that is a critical component. And you have to trust your local leads. You know, I, my, it took us forever to find our local leads in London. And it's not because of talent. It was because I needed people who understood not just the skill set, but the ability to communicate globally, you know, communicate remotely. On, on the topic of uh, finding talent, obviously, you know, after 20 years with the roles you've had, I assume you have a pretty good sense of what you're looking for in, the, in a leader. So what are some of those qualities that you look for? Some of the non-negotiable that are independent of industry and role? Quite frankly, it really comes down to there has to be something unique and interesting about you. You know, we spend way too much at work to be with people that are just not inspiring. Even when we were back at Digitas, you know, I was hiring entry-level people and I got this resume. It was very, you know, very plain, very simple. It was, you know, comms major from such and such school, you know, et cetera, et cetera, 3.7, 3.8 GPA. I was like, meh. But she had attached her transcript and she took really cool courses for electives. Um, and I hired her. And then I was you know, interviewing for these London jobs. And I met this woman who had a career as a techno singer and fell in love with digital media after her career was over. And, and now she's competing globally in CrossFit. You know, I think that you have to realize that, and you know, some of your advertising fans are going to be upset at me when I say this, but advertising is not that hard, right? Like you can teach advertising to anyone who cares, right? Like if you really want to come to work every day and learn advertising, like I can teach you that, right? But you have to care. You have to be interesting, you know? And, you know, this is, you know, and, and this is a different take on the whole like DE&I have a diverse team, but 
you, you, I mean, I had a team at Hilton, you know, one of the guys, he, you know, averaged like a 220 bowler. That's cool. I just think it's different. It's fun. One of my people in, you know, Dallas, she and her husband had a brewery as a side hustle. That's awesome. You know, having that kind of uniqueness to people is so important, you know, and you're going to laugh, but like we, you know, you and I, we both have quirks. Me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking you down. You? You? I mean, you know, I just, do you really want to go to work with 20 homogeneous people? Like that's just not fun. It it boils down to the fact that there's a lot need of a lot of different perspectives in the room, especially right now. Somebody who's come up with an idea that's coming out of that field and then at that moment is the right idea. Yeah, and it's any job description you write today, I guarantee you we can find 50 people who are qualified. But who do you want to work with? (laughs) Right? That is very true. So I want to shift from a second from obviously you have a lot of experience still building, but within the large of a very big organization, whether it was at Hilton or at Arnold, you're now CEO of your own business. What's that shift been like for you? What, what, what do you, you know, which lessons did you bring in? And then which lessons did you have to learn in your new role? I, along with two business partners, bought a um, B2B travel magazine. It's called Hotel Business and, you know, buying B2B print magazines focusing on hospitality in the middle of a global pandemic that urges you not to travel is a unique thing to do. You know, it was interesting. I had never, you know, I spent so much time on the media side as a client, on the media side as an agency person, but never as a publisher. And, you know, I did work in hospitality, obviously. And so, you know, this opportunity came up and, you know, the joy of being a freelancer now is I get to do things that I want to do. And so the fun part is that this CEO gig is actually one of my side hustles and I love it. You know, we've got an amazing team of 15 people that are wildly dedicated to our two properties. But you know, the interesting thing about it is it's a very, you know, publishing is very different than agency life. You know, agency life is, you know, unfortunately it's a little bit cutthroat. It's a little bit up or out. It's a little bit, uh, what have you done for me lately? You know, what I find really interesting about publishing is I can guarantee you that every single one of our people loves the brand and loves what we're doing here. And we know that our readers love what we're doing here. And so you have to treat that team differently. They bring an amazing set of skill sets around engaging the community, engaging our readers, engaging our advertisers. But now, for example, like I want to redesign properties. I want to, you know, change editorial strategy. I want to you know, I have, obviously we don't buy, we didn't buy this to just let it, you know, sit still, you know, but how do you bring that kind of shift strategy from agency into publishing? You know, publishing doesn't move at the same speed. And so you really have to course correct, you know, and shift gears differently. And it's not that publishing gears speeds are worse. I think there's an art to everything that they do that, is different than in advertising. You know, there's so much like go, 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 answer the client as quickly as possible in advertising. But that's not what publishing is about. You know, sure, breaking news, but how do you inform readers? How do you drive engagement long term? It took me a little while to really realize that the not just the product and the value proposition is different, but the process to getting to that is different. 
you know, in agency, even in corporate America, there are a lot of times where you just think brute force, you know, with FTEs or budget or whatever can like push a project through. But it doesn't work like that, you know, when you're creating really great content for, you know, quite frankly, a very discerning community, right? Like when you're doing B2P, B2B, you are writing to your peers, you know, and I've always found, you know, a lot of people have, you know, have been very nice to me and have said lots of things about like, oh, Armin, you're so great presenting, et cetera, et cetera. The clients love you. The funny thing is, is like the most terrifying presentations for me have always been internal meetings and conferences, right? Like to your peers is so much harder because they know what they're talking about. <laughs> they know, you know, and so I think, you know, you, 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 you take over a publication in the middle of a global pandemic where, as you guys can imagine, like advertising revenues had tanked, et cetera. You know, like how do you engage the sales team, motivate them? How do you keep them engaged to, you know, find new ways to develop products, you know, for our advertisers as well as for our readers? You know, are very proud of our team for, you know, pivoting into, you know, digital conferences, digital Zoom sessions, you know, really trying to still highlight some of the really important issues in our industry um, in really unique ways um, that hadn't been done six, 12 months ago, you know, ago. And you also have to give people the space to fail. The, the more interesting dynamic now is I own part of this. You know, like it's one thing to be CEO, but now I'm own part owner, right? And so as an owner, the question becomes like, how do you let the team fail? I keep kind of going back to like basic analogies for me. And I just think like, okay, like, but if I owned a bakery, like, would I ever let them come up with new recipes, right, for cookies or cakes? Like, if I didn't, the store would never go anywhere. But if I let them, they're going to come up with crappy recipes. <laughs> and, you know, like, ingredients are going to get wasted. And I have to let the team, you know, explore opportunities. Some will be great, some won't. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's definitely been a big learning experience. Yeah, and, and like going through, as you just mentioned, like a very unique phase for the industry that you serve and that you're a part of. So, you know, given that you are talking, I assume a lot to your readers as much as to, you know, because they're your readers, but also probably your content providers. I think I would be delinquent if I didn't ask for a perspective. You know, we are right now in a shift. The world is reopening at different places in different, at different paces in different places. I guess like what does the hospitality industry expect, hope for? What can we as traveler expect? What, what, what's the perspective right now? So, you know, I can share a couple things. You know, we recently just attended one of the first hospitality conferences that were in, that was in person. Um, and the sense of optimism was so palpable. It was really a fantastic thing to to behold. I think that, you know, the very obvious answer to your question is, I think, you know, leisure travel will bounce back much, much faster than corporate travel. I think corporate travel will bounce back starting January. In Q4 of 2020, CFOs didn't carve out travel budgets. You know, and I think now's not the time to add budget, right? So I think, you know, when we get to Q4 2021, I think, you know, T&E budgets will go back in some shape or form. I don't know if people are going to travel the same way they used to for work. But I don't necessarily think that has to do with COVID. 
I think that has, you know, the actual virus, right? I think that has to do with, we've learned a lot in the past 18 months about how do I work with you? Do I really need to go? What's the value trade-off of me going versus me being home with my kids for dinner? You know, so I think that's actually the interesting dynamic. You know, obviously for like the next three to six months, you know, for example, for me, like I've told all our employees, like if you're not comfortable traveling, you don't have to travel. Like that's full stop. Right. But I think once we get really past this, like knock on wood, we get to Q1 2022. I think that I don't think we're going back exactly to the way we were. I mean, I used to fly from Boston to San Francisco for one night. Like that doesn't make sense, you know, and the question becomes like, is the meeting really that important? You know, can you do it online? Because if you do it online, you'll be with your kids, you know, or your loved ones or just your bed. And I think that's the dynamic, you know, the values of people have changed. Yeah. And I think there's also obviously a corporate component because a day trip to San Francisco ends up being probably a $1,500 to $2,000 expense. And, you know, you're the CFO is calculating ROI on everything that's going out, right? Yeah. What's actually also really interesting that a lot of people aren't necessarily talking about is the um, carbon emissions, right? So if you think about it, every company has set, every major company in the world has set sustainability goals, you know, and one of those sustainability goals is about carbon emissions. And part of the deficit that companies get out of that is from traveling. And part of their plans have always been to buy carbon offsets, right? To offset the travel. And so now in 2021, nobody had to buy carbon offsets, which was great. Um, You know, not only, you know, better for the environment also. And I think that there's also another economic benefit to not traveling that people aren't really seeing just yet. Because if you're going to hit your carbon emission goals, either you don't travel or you buy offsets, so now not only am I paying $1,500 for that trip for San Francisco, but I have to buy the offset also. And so I think there's another cost hidden in there that a lot of CFOs are realizing, oh, there's more to this than, than just the actual airfare. But the overall outlook is still positive. The industry's coming back. There's no question, right? Like, look at Florida, look at all the tourist spots. I mean, Miami right now is outpacing RevPAR year over year, even year over two years. Um, occupancy is through the roof. The rate, annual night rates are through the roof, which is fantastic, right? It's fantastic to see, obviously, the local economies. It's amazing. Um, you know, and I think the rest of the travel industry, you know, look, everybody's getting married. You know, weddings are the first corporate, you know, group events, right? So that's the first group event. Well, if you can go to your, you know, nephew's wedding, then you can go to the team offsite in Phoenix in August, right? And that's what, you know, is going to start happening again. So, um, I think it'll be faster than everyone had originally thought. I mean, I think some of the Delta numbers were 2024, and I don't think it's going to take that long. Well, thank you for the perspective. I'm going to take it back a little bit to you and ask, you know, over the years, how has your definition of success changed? It's, it's, a, it's a funny question, Dino, because about it was all triggered by uh, an appoint, me hiring a financial advisor. I hired him. He said, great, give me all your revenue, income. I gave it to him. He asked me for my budget. You know, and I'm pretty fastidious with numbers. So, you know, I filled out this sheet, lickety split in five minutes. And he called me and was like, where's the 60 grand? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you told me you make this much money and you told me you spend this much money, but there's $60,000 that's missing. Where's the money? And so I, for like three months, like maniacally tracked everything in Mint, everything. And we got to this place where we knew two numbers. How much do we need to live? 
mortgage, rent, car, food, et cetera, the kids' school, whatever. And then how much do we need to live well? Um, you know, unfortunately for us at the time that that second number, we were making more than that. And the minute we realized that, the unending need to get promoted, to excel, to, you know, scramble up to the top, just started to fall by the waysides. You know, I love what I do and I still work as hard as I ever did. But this angst or this like this sense of like, if I don't get promoted, I'm not succeeding. Right. Immediately went away. What more do I want? Like, I have a great life. I wake up in the morning. I go for a run. My kids are there when I come back. We have a lovely home. They go to school. Why do I need to live in this world where like if I don't get promoted again, I'm all of a sudden not a success? And the minute I had that like moment of clarity, I just went to work and I just did my job. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> like it was the most simple thing ever. Like go to work, leave. Every six months I had my review. Armin, you're doing great. These are the things to work on. Great. And I kept doing it. And I know I'm trying to make it a little bit, a little bit lighthearted, but that's what it was. You know, and so now, you know, you fast forward to where I am now, like, you know, I left Hilton right before the pandemic in a funny twist of fate, just because I was traveling too much and I was away from my kids too much. And, you know, I decided to go freelance and I have the great fortune of having clients that engage me intellectually. They're really nice. Like, here's a key insight, right? When the number of jerks in your life plummet your quality of life goes up. You know, I've turned down gigs from people that I just don't think you're nice. And I know again, right? Like that sounds really silly, but I'm happy. You know, like I love, I can genuinely say like, I love interacting with my clients. They're lovely people, you know? And so, and they're grateful and they're thankful. And at three o'clock today, when my kids get home, I can, you know, block my calendar and go play with them. You know, tomorrow I can block, you know, four to four fifteen to do mise en place for dinner and prep the steak, <laughs> you know, and spending 15 minutes at four o'clock. I promise you, your dinner is going to be incrementally, you know, exponentially better if you just spend that time <laughs> or even like the silly things like going to Home Depot on Wednesday at 10 a.m. is way better of an experience than Saturday morning at 9 a.m. You know, you're just like, oh, like, this is lovely. Is my income going to skyrocket? Probably not. Am I, you know, could I have made more if I stayed in corporate or made more if I stayed at the agency? Probably. But I'm making more than that bigger number. And so it's okay. Yeah, it is okay. <laughs> it's really okay. <laughs> it's funny, we were talking about clients. I had a moment three years into my career as a solopreneur. I had a moment where I had zero revenue and I, and I was writing a proposal for a client. I had a round of feedback that came back. I made the change. I got another round of feedback and I realized that the feedback that was asked on the second, I could have written the proposal and sold it the work, but I realized that the way... And the type of feedback that was requested would have made that client an unbearable client. And I walked away from the business still at, at that point at zero revenue. And I think it was the most empowering and liberating moment in my life. And, you know, three weeks later, a client I loved came back, different person, gave me 
a large enough engagement that I could build the business from there. So, yeah. And you know, what's interesting is, is, you know, a lot of people, they think that, you know, one of the benefits of me going freelance is I don't have to quote manage people, you know, and also kind of coming back to the the theme of this podcast. What's really interesting is, is like the freedom that I have found in this new dynamic that I'm living in has created this space for me to, you know, give feedback to the people on my teams that I work with in very new ways. You know, they, they it's funny because like I go to all my clients with the very simple value proposition of I will give you my unvarnished opinion, right? Like that's why you hire me, right? Ar- arguably, I'm intelligent at what I do. It's debatable. But, you know, I can guarantee you, you will get an unvarnished opinion. You will get an opinion that is not weighed down by politics, weighed down by what the CEO thinks or whatever the answer may be. And that's what my clients love about it. And what's really interesting is, is that their teams have come to me now and had said like, Hey, Armin, like, did I handle that meeting really well? Like, I'm still figuring out how to manage agencies. Like, is this going the right way? And they all know that they're still going to get the unvarnished truth from me. Yeah. And so, you know, I have found a new way to, to provide guidance, to provide leadership to people in a way that is very much so in line with who I am as a person of like, this is who I am. So I can be frank with you. Because you have the ability to walk away. I always think, you know, as a service provider, no matter what job you're doing, the only thing that you can bring to your client is your integrity, that you will always tell them what you think is best for their business. You may be wrong, but you're not going to tell them something that you don't think is best for their business just because you're afraid that by telling them something they don't want to hear, you may damage your relationship. Yeah, I mean, I... It's the, it's the, it's the, it's, it's so true. I mean, I tell, you know, it's funny, part of my pitch to some of these clients has been, look, two of the biggest agencies in the industry have hired me twice. So I can't be a serial killer, right? Like that's number one. And number two, I've had a ton of clients hire me back multiple times at different companies, right? Like people see some value in me. And so they keep coming back for more and that's, you know, and they will tell you, Armin pulls no punches and this is what he is, you know, both strategically, you know, as a leader, as a partner. So it's a lot of fun. I think that's very true. You know, and I, and I can have to say you and I work together in different environments and under different circumstances and, and the relationship has always been exactly the same. Sometimes we've seen along the same lines and sometimes we've had, you know, the opportunity to work things through or have different opinions, but I always knew that I got your true thoughts. And I think that was always really important to me. And I think, you know, first of all, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I think the same is true with you, Dino, but I think also the other component that's equally as important is, and when the debate was over, we could still go have a beer. Yes. I can fight with you all day long about strategy. Because we're fighting about a topic. We're not finding each other. Exactly. That's how you're building the relationship. I want to be super clear. I was right in all of those fights, but... (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't expect anything less from you, Narman. But, you know, I mean, I think like we all, right, like, you know, like we all have to get to this place. It's so great to be passionate about work and be passionate about positions and be passionate about the approach or whatever the solution may be, you know, and none of these problems that we all face has one solution. The question is, is which is the one that we want as a team? I think the second really important corollary to that is once we've settled on what is the solution, you lose your attachment to your own solution. Absolutely. You're committed to the execution of whatever solution is picked. Absolutely. 
And, you know, and I think as leaders, you know, there, you know, it's funny, like when we were at Hilton, there were times the team would come to me and I had, um, I had three people who led one part of my business and the three young women came to me and they were like, Armin, you're wrong. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? They were like that. You were totally wrong. None of us agree with you. And here's the three reasons why. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Like, I'm, I love that. And you've taught me something new. And, you know, if you create a space for people to be able to tell you you're wrong, what more do you want? So I think that's a really interesting thing because I think many leaders step into a situation and say, you know, the best idea wins. I'm not attached to my own idea. And it's really important as a leader to show early to the team that if they really do come with the best idea, you're willing to let your own idea go. Absolutely. You got to give people space to learn and think for themselves and debate and argue with their boss. You know, if you can't give people space to argue with their boss, how are they ever going to get better? Exactly. All right. So speaking of things that we don't like or like in business, I, I this is this is my favorite part of the show. I always ask my guests, what is a business expression or a business cliche that drives you crazy, makes you rip your hair off, makes your skin curl? I know I can count on you for one. (laughs) So for me, the phrase is real time. You know, I think the genesis of real time right in the corporate conversation is, you know, real time decisioning, real time, you know, platform decisions on paid search or whatever algorithm or Watson is going to make decisions for you in real time, et cetera. First of all, nothing is real time. If I wanted to be a real jerk about the situation, right? Like you can always be faster, right? So there is no real true sense of real time. But if I'm, you know, moving away from just being a childish jerk about the topic, um, you know, I think that like it's created this fake sense of security for people, right? Like when, you know, media companies show up and they say to the CMO, like, oh, we're going to be making these decisions in real time as if the real time notion is going to make the decisions better, right? Like the decisioning be- is, is good because of the thought behind it, the algorithm behind it, whatever it may be. The real time nature of it has nothing to do with the quality of the decision. And, and keep in mind, right, like I had... million in media at Hilton. I had $7 billion revenue in, you know, in the US. These are all public numbers, so it's okay, right? We were making lots of decisions in arguably quote unquote real time. It's not about the real time notion. It's about the thought process behind it. And the reason why this phrase really bothers me is because it has extended into the way we work. It has extended into the way we think. We all have gotten that text message from someone that says, hey, did you get my email? Yeah, I got your email. I just haven't prioritized your email to respond to it. You don't know the 12 things that I'm dealing with right now. And by the way, even if your email was the most important thing, I still want time to think Right. Like I was in a meeting once and it's like 20 people and a client asked me a question and I was like, oh, that's a really great question. And I just sat there for a second and people got nervous and they were like, what's wrong? I was like, nothing. I'm just thinking like, why can't I think, (laughs) you know, and I think it's just sad that we've gotten to this place and now it's like spread to like personal lives. Dino, did you get my text message? Yes, I got your text message. Like, I don't know what to tell you, Armin, right? Like, I'm feeding the kids. I'm doing this. I'm in the bathroom. hundred million things could be going on and people are upset that Dino hasn't replied to my text message. It's just not good. What you were saying about the time to process, I was reading Mindset by Carol Dweck and she says that if you're prioritizing fast and perfect as what you reward, 
you're really eliminating the ability to learn difficult things. You have to think. Just give people a chance to think. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's shift to the personal. What are your outside of work interests and how have they, you know, impacted how you show up at work? You know, so as you know, I uh, I'm a big runner. I ran in high school not really well. I ran in college not really well. I ran in my late 20s not really well. Um, but in my late 30s, I found a coach and really started committing to running. Not to sound too hyperbolic, but it's changed my life. To wake up, to have some time in the morning to myself, sometimes to just listen to music, sometimes to just like ponder stuff. You know, when I was traveling for work so much, like it's such an amazing way to see the world. You know, I have this awesome, I did an amazing 11 mile route through Italy, through Rome, you know, at 6 a.m. just hitting all the spots. And, you know, obviously like you're not standing there and like looking at the Trevi Fountain and really appreciating it, but to wake up in the morning and go see all these spots is amazing, right? You know, so I think that's been a huge part, you know, and now that I have kids, it's funny because there are mornings when I leave to go run and they'll say like, no, daddy, don't go running. Like we want you to stay. And I've turned it into a moment to say to them, like, you know, girls, like daddy loves to run. You will find things that you will love to do. And it's not that I don't love you. It's just that like, if I go run, I'm going to be a better daddy when I come back. They're learning that. And it's amazing. There are days they come up to me and I was like, let's go read a book. No, daddy, I really love playing with my Barbies. And I'm just going to go do that by myself for a little bit. That's awesome. You know, to create that kind of empowerment in women, you know, and young girls is huge. You know, the other funny thing about running is it's just a pair of shoes. You know, I've gone on so many runs with colleagues and clients and coworkers. And, you know, they always think that I run too fast and I will happily run a 13 minute mile with anyone. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great equalizer, I think. And uh, uh, it's also good for the waistline. So that's helpful. You know, one of the things that running has done for me that has changed the way that I work. If you just show up and run your miles day by day and just do not just, just run the miles you're supposed to run every day and increase them the way you're supposed to week by week you will get better. And I think it's really taught me the value of just putting in the effort consistently and correctly. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. And, you know, the funny, the, you know, to add to that, what's really amazing is, is like you, you know, you read about the top athletes in the world and they're training, right? You know, the top athlete, you know, top marathoners in the world, most of their runs are much, much slower than their actual pace. And, you know, you think about that, like, oh, like, so you're training to run like in marathon in two hours and 15 minutes, but most of your runs are at like a 225, 230 pace. It just makes you realize like you don't always have to operate at top speed to achieve. And so I, I think it's a fabulous metaphor for all of us at work too. Like you don't have to operate at top speed all the time. And quite frankly, you can't. All right. Final question. Food for the body or food for the soul? You can share a recipe. You can share a book, a song, a movie, a piece of art, a play. And so this is going to sound like a cheat, but it's food for the soul. But the food for the soul is teaching my kids to cook. You know, and the fun part of, so I have six-year-old twins, as you know, yep. and they have their own kids' knives and all sorts of things. And it's been fun, you know, like it's, it's fun to teach them how water boils, right? It's ton fun to teach them that, you know, two halves make a whole. 
with measuring cups and measuring spoons. So there's all these like fun STEM kind of, you know, teachable moments with them. But on the flip side, there's also this really interesting creative piece. We make pasticcheci with the girls every so often. And there was one time I was making pasticcheci with them and I was making them try all the ingredients. And a really great pasticcheci, in my opinion, includes anchovy, which as we all know, is very divisive. And the girls saw this anchovy and they were like, what on earth, daddy? We're not putting that. There's no way. We're not eating that. We're not putting that in the pot. I made them taste it. They both thought it tasted horrible. Um, we still chopped it up. We still put it into the pot. And when dinner was over, you know, when we were eating dinner, you know, we were talking about the flavors and I taught them about umami. But what was really interesting and their takeaway from it was really about like, oh, like it's really about the sum of the parts, right? Like it's, you know, there's lots of things that can be perceived as not good. And so it's really, what teaching them to cook has been amazing. It's so fun. It's getting to the point now where I just like sit in the kitchen and I read out the instructions. You know, they're still learning to read, so we're not there just yet. But, you know, watching them chop things and make pasta chechi for Nana when they came over was it's a pretty rewarding, amazing experience. So, and then I get to eat. So it's food for the soul, but there's also food to eat. I think that's a, a great place to finish this conversation. Armin, thank you so much for being part of this. When I came up with the idea of the podcast and what it represented, like I started making my list of names and one of the first five that I put down, like, I'm going to get Armin. So thank you for making that happen. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's uh, so great to be here with you. So great to see you. Uh, and uh, very honored to be amongst your guests. So thank you, Dino. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And please leave a rating, leave a review, tell your friends, and talk about it in social media. If you like music... Please stick around because at the end of the credits, as usual, I'm going to share one song by my wife, Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. If you need help with marketing and you want to hire Armin, or if you just want to read what he has to say, you can find him on LinkedIn, linkedin.com backslash in backslash amolavi, spelled A-M-O-L-A-V-I. You can find me online at al4ep.com and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. I am also on all social network with uh, at al4edp. So find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Dino Cattaneo, and the theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums. Tony Savarino played guitar, and Jesse Williams played bass. Now, choosing the song was really easy because it is a perfect title for my good friend Armin. It's called Ten Kinds of Trouble. Enjoy.
southern drone always puts my heart in a spin. So when you walked in, cool and slow, you caught me before you even said hello. Jet black hair, sky blue eyes, I thought my So 